friends, colleagues, I hope that I'm audible not only within the room, but to our large diaspora on the internet. Um, this is an exciting occasion. Actually, it's the third such exciting occasion for our natural governance program here at the Martin School. Uh, many of you, I'm sure, will remember that uh, we've had a couple of earlier talks, one by John Vucetic and the other by Mohamed Fahadinia, and it's a double pleasure, not only that those were startlingly successful and well attended, but that John, I know, is online <coughs> and Mohammed is in the room to join this discussion. No less exciting is the third in the series is to be presented by Dr. Alexandra Zimmerman, <coughs> who's had a startling career in the topic of human wildlife conflict. And at the moment, most significantly perhaps, as well as being a senior research fellow at the Wild Crew, is also the leader, the chair of the IUCN task force on that topic, which is gaining enormous international attention. So many things in life tend to end up in a bit of argy-bargy uh, and conservation and everything associated with it is no exception. So hardly uh, any conservation issue anywhere in the world is devoid of at least some conflict between the protagonists or between elements of wildlife and people. So this is, as it were, a funnel. This topic is a funnel into which almost every aspect of biodiversity conflict pours, and it's one that's gravely in need of solutions. It's solutions that Alex Zimmerman's going to tell us about. So uh, I'm going to invite her to the stage in just a moment but I'll anticipate the future by telling you that after she has spoken, we have the opportunity for a question and answer session that will involve both people in the room and people beyond the room. We'll be terribly disciplined, I'll say it now and I'll say it again later, about using the microphone, because without the microphone, the wider family can't hear us at all. So when people have anything to say, they must say it in the microphone. Uh, and I'll just conclude by pointing out that not only do we think this topic is important, but I think you all do as well, because this event was completely sold out more than a week ago, which surely is a marvelous sign for its importance. And on that note, I'd like you to welcome Alex Zimmerman up to the stage to give her presentation. Thank you very much, David, for the kind introduction. Thank you to the Oxford Martin School for organizing this. Um, it's my pleasure to be here and talk to you about conflicts in uh, conservation. Now, many of us know each other already, and I think many of uh, our audience online, we have worked together. You know me as working on human wildlife conflict, one of the flagship conflicts that takes place in biodiversity conservation. Um, and I'm certainly going to talk a little bit about that, but today I want to really explore the wider conservation conflicts that we need to grapple with um, in, in this field and con human wildlife conflicts, that is direct conflicts over wildlife, are very much a flagship um, within that and they teach us a lot about the wider conflicts as well. And so I came to this um, through a sort of a, 
a path starting in zoology. I studied zoology many, many years ago. Um, and just as the field of conservation biology has evolved a great deal more into what we now call conservation science, um, I too drifted very quickly from zoology into social sciences on the realization that so much um, at the core of these issues is entirely about people. And so following um, that kind of evolution of the field of conservation science, it has become more and more interdisciplinary. And we've seen that in the, in the degrees that, that are out there, the work of institutes like the Wild Crew and many others, the work of conservation organizations has become entirely interdisciplinary and it needs to be. And the social sciences, when I started out, were kind of a bit of a niche side, nice to have, and they've now become entirely core and essential and seen as that in conservation science. And so what I'm gonna to propose today is that this evolution needs to continue and the way it is going, and I'd like to propose it should go, is to start to um, include the field of peace and conflict studies and everything that that entails. Because at the core of so many of the issues we're grappling with in conservation are conflicts. They're everywhere in all different dimensions, different levels, different scales, different severities. And it is becoming quite urgent that we really incorporate this, not as a little nice side um, topic, but it becomes woven into the field of conservation science substantially. And I would predict that that is where this field is actually going. And so the core purpose of my talk today is to propose to you that conflict resolution is absolutely critically important. Um, it is urgent and it is needed at scale, not a little bit here and a little bit there. We have to actually weave this into conservation, biodiversity conservation substantially everywhere, globally, and that this is essential. So let's explore that a little bit. And I think this is extremely timely because right now, as we have all learned in the last two years, we have several global shocks or crises um, happening. We have climate change with the COP26 having just finished. That itself is full of conflicts in every way possible. Uh, we've had the COVID pandemic bringing about conflicts everywhere from the from uh, losses of income to global uh, clashes between states and organizations. And somewhere in there, we have the crisis of biodiversity loss, and we're trying to grapple with this as well. And all of these things bring about, you know, day-to-day -day fundamental problems from loss of income. We see this particularly post-pandemic now, where a lot of biodiversity conservation strategies have relied so much on tangible economic benefits from biodiversity, for example, tourism, such things have just disappeared during these times of lockdown and so on. And so we have seen really direct threats to people and their ability to conserve um, wildlife and biodiversity. And these sorts of conflicts now are not going to go away. These are not just going to de-escalate and die off. These problems are global and they're huge. And I would say we have to figure out very quickly how to address these at scale. And so much so that even in 
The next uh, big UN convention um, COP that is about to happen uh, in April next year, the COP 15 uh, the, of the Convention of Biological Diversity, where the aim is to now look at the next 10 years through this so-called post-2020 global biodiversity framework. If you look at that entire um, aim, the entire vision of that convention is to create, um, to find ways to live in harmony with nature. So again, this is the opposite of all these conflicts that we are, uh, that we are facing. So how are we gonna do this? It is very important, very good to have this vision how to do this in practice is going to be very much more difficult. And so what are we talking about? Well, it gets very, very messy. These conflicts are about so many things. And so many of these things are social and they're political and they're cultural and they're about people and groups and organizations. And how do we deconstruct this mess of, of factors and how do we make sense of what we need to do? And what sort of conflicts are we talking about actually? So let me give you examples. One clear and obvious one straight away is protected areas. Now protected areas as the foundation of uh, biodiversity conservation is essentially important. And there's very much a drive to increase the area of marine and terrestrial protected areas nowadays. This naturally creates potential for conflict. These are areas that might uh, th these bring about questions of who is allowed to access resources. They, they create disputes over um, tenure, uh, access, who gets the benefits, is it the tourist resort or is it the local people and which local people and conflicts between those. Um, there's layers and layers of potential conflict here. And so this is very much about benefits from conservation, it's about equity, it's about access. Then you have your other very high kind of profile, high profile kind of conservation conflicts, as we saw, for example, with Cecil the lion a few years ago, um, where, of course, you have a very contentious issue like hunting or trophy hunting of wildlife. And there will be people who are in favor of this, and there's people who are adamantly against this, and there's people who are trying to figure out what to do. Um, with this issue. And interestingly, this isn't, this is classic in conservation conflicts because it isn't, it isn't binary. There are many different sub-conflicts going on here. So you might think that it is primarily between uh, conservation and hunting, but actually there's an enormous conflict between conservation and animal rights, which we see over and over in conservation again as well, because this becomes an issue of beliefs and values that are opposite to each other, and it brings out quite intense emotions. And so you have those who campaign very strongly for absolutely no hunting on the basis of welfare and rights of the animal, and then you have others who um, advocate that there has to be a balance, there has to be, there are actually uh, benefits from this activity too. And this can become extremely heated and complicated and multi-layered. Let me give you another example, which really gets into the sorts of dilemmas we face sometimes. This is a map of um, the uh, of Kutupalong refugee camp in Bangladesh near the border of Myanmar. Before the uh, refugee crisis, um, it looked like this. 
the Kutupalang um, refugee camp, which emerged in 2017, 2018, 800,000 people moved into this area. This is an absolute humanitarian disaster and crisis. And yet look what happens very, very rapidly. Now this creates a huge dilemma. There are there, in, in so many ways, in so many layers. And one of the, the uh, quite um, noticeable conflicts that happened here is that elephants used to pass through this area. Um, and they continued to try to pass through this area. And they encountered um, in a new settlement of 800,000 people and around a dozen people, refugees were killed by elephants and it created absolute chaos. And of course, this made it into the papers. Of course, this created a lot of attention. Um, and here you have a, a real dilemma. Uh, you have a very dire humanitarian, serious um, humanitarian crisis, and you have a conservation problem piled on top of each other. And there are layers and layers of, of issues here. Not only is this a problem of what do you do about the elephants trying to pass through? But then there were also, of course, local communities who were there before, and there's resentments that pile up, and there's um, clashes between all sorts of different groups. And so as conservation scientists, are we meant to figure out how to solve this? This is really going a little bit beyond the scope. So this is about needs. It's about human rights. It's about security. And then lastly, the classic human-wildlife conflict example, people against other people about a species. And one of the most intractable and complicated one is that of wolves, particularly in parts of the US, um, also in parts of Norway and other parts of Europe. And this, this, this is really not about the wolf very much at all. This is about different groups of people who have very different deeply rooted values, beliefs, and identities, who mistrust each other, who blame each other, who, um, who cannot talk to each other anymore. And these are conflicts that are about politics, they're about identities, they're about polarization and divisions. And so you look at these, just these examples, a few kind of typical examples of the sorts of conservation conflicts that exist, and you look at what they're about, and they're about access and benefits and values and beliefs and emotions. They're about security and divisions, identity, politics. These are about the social interactions of humans. And so these really cannot be solved with technology and they can't be solved with data very much either. And so this is why I'm saying the field of conservation biology, which has turned into science, it needs to move further. It needs to start to figure out how do we deal with all this mess, this intangible, um, these difficult uh, dilemmas. And so what we tend to do and have done in the past to try and resolve environmental and conservation conflicts is to look at the obvious, the, the, what you see, what you see above the surface is some sort of clash, some sort of dispute. Something has happened and you try your best to do something about it. Um, and so most efforts currently in resolving conflicts in biodiversity try to focus on this, um, understandably. So this is both a bit of a criticism, but it's also an acknowledgement of this is the best we've got right now. However, underneath all of these are layers and layers of less visible uh, drivers, triggers, causes, things that are that are uh, 
causing these conflicts to, to uh, occur in the first place. And really focusing in only on the quick fixes, the, the technical or the practical interventions that just look at the dispute is very, very limiting. This looking only here isn't going to create change. If you want long-term change, if you want to work towards that CBD mission of uh, vision of living in harmony with nature, change happens here. And this is, of course, very, very much harder. And so in conservation conflicts and in human wildlife conflicts, very classically, the fundamental um, recognition, the fundamental thing first to realize is that although it looks like there is a conflict between a resource, an animal, a park, something, and uh, people who live there, the conflicts are actually, of course, between all the different groups of people that are involved. And that can be individuals, it can be different communities, it can be organizations, it can be um, parts of governments, it could even be entire states. And so there is a need to shift a little bit our thinking from looking at the visible species or wildlife or um, protected area issue to what is actually going on. And it is very, very rarely binary. There's usually number, a number of um, parties involved. And so what I wanna try to, uh, to do today in this brief talk is to have a little look at how can we make sense of this mess of conflicts? It is, it can be so overwhelming, intimidating. What sort of approaches um, are out there that we can import, adapt, modify to use directly in biodiversity conflicts? And what might be the way forward ultimately in this? And for this, I would take us to one of the, the main models that is um, in, used in, in conservation and in human wildlife conflict in particular, which um, I have worked with a lot, and you may have heard me speak about before, it was originally developed by my colleague Brian McQuinn in the Canadian Institute for Conflict Resolution. It was adapted further by Madden and McQuinn um, to look at conflicts over wildlife. And I've worked with this extensively around the world too. And this is basically, it's a conceptual model. It's trying to take the messy conflicts and trying to make sense of what is going on. Because one thing you may observe and you may know from your own work is that some conflicts seem relatively solvable and some seem absolutely impossible. And how do you even know what's going on? How do you first of all make sense of it all? And so this, is kind of alluding to the iceberg. So at the, at the visible top, you have a dispute. Something has happened. There has been some kind of um, loss or damage. Some uh, property um, has been damaged or there is an issue of safety or an issue of access or livelihood loss. This is what, uh, what you see. But very, very often, in fact, most often, there is something else going on underneath. There are these things are rarely just one-off events. There's usually a history, and that history is what drags this conflict into a, into um, levels of, of of deeper complications that below the surface. This is what we have to figure out and uncover: the history of recurrence of an issue, and in particular, a history of unsatisfactory um, attempts to resolve it, is what tends to make these conflicts more weighty and. and uh, more complicated. 
And the, in the worst case scenario, um, this carries on and on, and it, it, time is a factor in this. And these, this history accumulates so much that groups of people feel threatened. They feel threatened in who they are, their identities, mistrust starts to build, values feel threatened, and everything starts to break down. And so what we really are looking at in conservation is that these sorts of conflicts, we can, we, with the right techniques, with the right knowledge, awareness, we can do something about this kind of deep-rooted, identity-based, intractable conflict is extremely difficult to deal with. Um, and what we need to do urgently in conservation is try and make sure that we keep as we stay out of this level, that we don't allow conflicts to get that bad over time. So how do you figure out what's going on? Um, as I try to um, show you with this analogy, you see, first of all, that there's something, uh, there, there is some dispute. But you have to ask what is actually happening in order to figure out what is underneath that surface. Um, what is actually going on? What is the tension that is there really about? And therefore, are you trying to solve the right problem? Um, an example of this, uh, I've spent a lot of time working in the past, working on uh, conflicts about jaggers in, in Latin America, particularly in Brazil. And so you go, and there are many, many of these all over uh, the 17 countries that jaggers occur in, and each of them is very, very different. But very often it appears at first glance that it is a problem of, of a cattle rancher killing jaguar in retaliation for losing livestock. And so if you look at it only there and you look at only that top level, you will think, well, we need to reduce, um, the, we need to protect the livestock, then they will no longer kill the jaguar. That's not at all what's going on in most of these. This is entirely about these this community's identity, who they are, their history, their culture. In this particular example, it is part of the culture to hunt jaggers to a certain extent. And so just coming in with a bigger fence or uh, some kind of uh, quick fix isn't going to do it. And my worry is it is going to make the conflict worse. So how to know what is actually going on? So with, this, uh, with the um, levels of conflict, we took this further and we started to look at what are the telltale symptoms that can help you uh, get a sense of what's going on, uh, even before you perhaps do some more in-depth qualitative research on understanding the issues. You can, get a, you can very much get a sense. For example, if you are dealing with that top-level dispute, you will, know, you will hear from the parties involved a certain sympathy for the situation there will be concern with a practical resolution. There will be a willingness to adapt and an openness to actually working with people. If, however, you are, uh, what's going on is deeper than that and there is a history um, and these, the conflict has evolved into something uh, more deep-rooted, there is going to be, you will hear in conversations really some frustration about the issue, exaggeration of the incidences. Uh, there will be a, a history of, of unresolved um, attempts. And there's definitely an expectation that somebody else has to fix this. And there's a, 
huge amount of skepticism. And then worst case scenario, if you observe a conflict about wildlife biodiversity where the language is extremely negative, it's polarized, it's hostile, there's actual aggression, perhaps even violence, there is a refusal to cooperate and a hostility towards other parties, then you're dealing with something that is approaching an intractable conflict. And so the problem we currently have in conservation is that the vast majority of our efforts right now are looking at these conflicts as if they are simply at that level and they're trying their best to find quick fixes pressured by the urgency of the situation and that is understandable however the vast majority of biodiversity conflicts i would suggest are actually more in that middle level and this is where a lot of progress is basically hindered because if you try and apply a quick fix, as I said before, to something that is actually a deeper conflict among parties, you're not going to get very far. So how do we, how do we approach these problems? Um, what, can, in, what can we do in the short term? What are some of the techniques just to get a, a feel for how does one actually start to work with these different layers? And of course, this is a huge field of its own. So as I'm proposing that we need to add um, peace and conflict studies to conservation science, the whole family of, of studies around that, including negotiation, peacekeeping, um, conflict resolution, conflict transformation, mediation. These are fields of expertise that need to be added. So all I'm giving you today is a little bit of a flavor of the sorts of approaches that are there. Um, the fundamental, one fundamental um, tool for thinking about this comes from negotiation, and that is that you have to look at everything as having these three overlapping elephant, ele elements. There is an issue, something has happened, uh, but there are also relationships and there is a process that will help um, repair relationships and deal with the issue. And these three things have to be looked at together. So if you, if you do have uh, what I would call a level one conflict and you are dealing with primarily something that is, uh, there has been some damage and there isn't yet much hostility or resentment, this is, the aim of, the, of this is really to find, to find tangible solutions that are acceptable to all the parties. This is about safeguarding income, it is about reducing risk and it's about diversifying income sources if necessary, or these sorts of um, short-term solutions um, that the parties can work with. And the primary approach and the primary tools to this is interest-based nego negotiation. So let me explore this a little bit because this is extremely um, fundamental, um, very simple and yet absolutely fundamental to all conflict resolution, whether you're dealing with um, this kind of level one or more complicated. And the first most fundamental um, thing that has to be done here is you have to get the parties to talk to get each other. And the first stumbling block very often is that people involved in this dispute take on a position. And a position is a fixed idea. It is a statement of where we or I stand and it is not, in it. this is, my take on this, um, and it's not to be budged. 
And what has to happen, and this is the foundation for starting any kind of conflict resolution, is that those positions have to be shifted. And we have to talk about interests. So what is actually, what are actually the underlying needs and motivations and wants of the parties involved? So to give you an example, um, one of the human wildlife conflicts I've worked with is around uh, bats in Mauritius, where bats are perceived by um, many people, including the government of Mauritius, as crop raiders and menace. And uh, the, whereas the conservation organizations of Mauritius want to protect the species, which is endangered, uh, listed as endangered. And so the positions that the parties are taking here is uh, you have those who say this is a this is a crop raider, we, we need to eliminate this species. And you have conservation stakeholders in this who are saying absolutely not. This is a protected species. Killing even a single one of these is out of the question. So then you have a deadlock right there. So how do you shift this from talking not so much about, this is my position, I'm not moving from it, to talking about what is actually, what might be explorable options in this. Um, this is the, the first thing, it is the foundation of beginning any kind of dialogues to resolve conflicts. It applies in your day-to-day -day life as much as it does to um, negotiating some major uh, treaty. The, what this does, and why this is so simple yet important, is that what you, it helps to de-escalate attention and it focuses the party on some kind of, some kind of common outcome. And it can unlock the ability of those involved to find other solutions. And this, is, this then takes you to finding solutions that can be more win-win. One nice example or illustration of this um, that comes up quite often in negotiation courses is, is this, for example, if I were to ask you right now to arm wrestle with the person next to you, and I were to say, okay, everybody in this room, you will get one point every time you manage to arm wrestle the other person's arm down once. And you need to get three points. Everybody in this room needs to get three points. That is your aim. Off you go. The vast majority of us start to try and use force and arm wrestle the other person's arm down to get our point and our second point and our third point. Why do we do this? Because we already have, there's context here. We already know what arm wrestling is. This is we know it's a game of winning and losing. And so we bring that into it straight away. But the thing is, and a few people in, uh, will always pick this up straight away. I didn't say you need to win. I said, you need to get three points. But we naturally tend to look at things a little bit as win-lose. And so the whole aim, the whole practice of conflict resolution is to think differently, to not bring, and this is what the third party has to do, is not bring in those, those, that, that framing that we already have and start to look um, at the situation differently. And so what you're doing then is you're moving from this win-lose to a possible win-win of some sort. And to get that, and again, this is so, so basic, but these are the foundations I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting here that then from which you then can build the much more sophisticated conflict resolution um, 
approaches. So this absolutely requires a different way of looking at the problem, at challenging one's own, um, what one brings into it and looking at it in new ways. And so what this is essentially, and what is another extremely foundational method in all interest-based negotiation and in conflict resolution is what we call reframing. You take the problem as I've given it to you and you keep turning it this way, that way, the other way until you find some kind of entry point and you see something that can nudge you towards a solution, that can nudge the parties towards a solution. And it can be as simple as looking at a problem negatively and then looking at exactly the same problem flipped into something more positively. How do we solve the problem of cooperating elephants or how do we turn elephants into an opportunity? Do we look at human-wildlife conflict or do we look at human-wildlife coexistence? These are subtle changes that help. They are tools to help reframe and re-understand a problem. And it sounds extremely simple, but these are the building blocks of all conflict resolutions. These are the foundational tools. And this can then open up this kind of creative problem solving that ideally you want to do as a group. Now, important to say here is that often if we are a party in a conflict, we can't really, we struggle to do this. This is where a third party comes in and brings fresh, fresh insights. So what do you do then if, if things are more, more um, they have more of a history, they've accumulated more layers. This, this now becomes not so much about practical problem solving, but it becomes about um, relationships. It become, becomes about um, rebuilding trust. And very, very key in this is that it is natural need for all groups and all people to be heard. And very often in the process, one of the very first things that has to be done is that the parties involved in a conflict about whatever it may be, a protected area, wildlife, um, need to simply have a chance to ha have their side heard. And this is, of course, um, why we do things such as have uh, all sorts of community meetings in conservation. This is something that conservation has already become much, much better at, the whole processes of engagement, and this is, but it is important to really understand what it, this is about. This is about building relationships from which you then can start to engage in uh, conflict, practical conflict resolution. And so very often for this, you bring in an external party of some sort. It could be using mediation, which is um, used throughout society for everything from interpersonal conflicts to, to conflicts across states. And in mediation, really what this is, you're bringing in an impartial external third party to help those who are in conflict together find a solution. This is not where the third party orders a solution. This is where they help the parties find the solution themselves. And really, really important to realize in conservation is that the conservation sciences, we are, we are not these mediators. And there is sometimes an attempt to try and be um, sometimes perhaps out of lack of awareness or lack of resources, but in conservation conflicts, conservation scientists are a party. They are not the third uh, impartial party. They should not be the ones trying to mediate here. 
And so what I think we really, really need to do is make use, much more use of this in conservation. The problem we have right now is that we don't have access very much. We either don't have the funding or the resources to bring in mediators from other fields, or we don't have conservation mediators in, in our field in, in these problems. We don't, there are very, very few people, or we don't think about doing this. This is something we need to think about a lot, lot more. When that has, uh, when that has happened and you start to rebuild relationships, you can start to then go back up to that more practical level and you can start to discuss interests and you can start to reframe issues and you can start to engage in some creative problem solving once these parties can talk to each other again through the help of a third party. Um, and I wanted to tell you a little example of a creative problem solving story. Um, which is a classic in conflict resolution. Maybe some have heard this before. This is, um, I was trying to find the original source. It's a story of 17 camels. It's um, an old parable from the Middle East. It's been retold many, many times. It's used often in, in conflict uh, resolution teaching. So the story goes that there was a man who had 17 camels. He, he passed away and he had three sons. And in his will, it said that the sons would get, the first son would get half of his camels, the second son would get one third of his camels, and the third son would get one ninth of his, son, of his camels. And if they could figure this out, they would have the camels and they would also have what else he had left to them. And so these, this goes on and on because the, the, the three sons try and solve this problem and they realize that 17, can't be divided, if you want whole camels, by uh, a half or a third or a ninth. And it seemed absolutely impossible. There was no solution to this. And they became more and more entrenched and they took their positions. I demand my half because I'm the older one and so on. And they start, this starts to gather layers of argument and they are unable to resolve this. And one day, um, a wise old woman comes along and says, I don't know how to help you, but I'm going to give you my camel. And then they look at the problem again, and they have 18 camels. The first son takes half of 18, that's nine. The second son takes a third of 18, that's six camels. The third son takes one ninth of, his, of 18 camels, that's two camels, and it adds up to 17. And they give the spare camel back to the old lady. And this is such a lovely story because what it teaches us, us is that the solution was there all along, but we couldn't see it. The six camels are there and the, the nine and the six, they're there, but we couldn't see this. It had to have that fresh look from somebody outside to turn it around this way and that way until you find a solution. And this is a very creative one and it's a lovely story. And so I think that very much about what we really need to do in conservation science is try to figure out what is our, what is our 18th camel solution to these conflicts. Um, so very briefly looking at that third level, and this is where it really gets difficult and messy. What's going on in these, in these deep rooted conflicts is that you have, you have clashing identities, people who are, deeply divided, they don't trust each other, they, 
do not even want to talk to each other. It is just, and you can think of examples in the world currently, um, within countries, between groups, and so on. This happens, it is part of societies. These kinds of conflicts are extremely difficult to resolve. It takes a very, very long time. This takes, um, it takes teams of people, it takes years and years, and what we must at all costs try and prevent is that our conservation conflicts slip too much into these sorts of situations. And I won't um, go very much into these, but just to explain a little bit that these kinds of what are called in, in, in conflict studies, intractable conflicts, these are situations that are persistent, they're destructive, they're very resistant to any kind of, they're systemically resistant to solutions. This is where you have extreme divisions, extreme mis mistrust. And this is not just a matter of differences of opinion. People actually have different realities. They will see what you see differently and adamantly see it differently. It is, you can see the same thing in different ways. I don't know if you see here a seagull or a rabbit. There are, and this is where you can't say your reality is wrong. That just makes it all worse. So these are, these are um, conflicts that need reconciliation efforts. They need um, a very uh, widespread approach to this is something called conflict transformation, which is starting to come into conservation. Also, you may have come across this. Conflict transformation basically essentially tries to look at all three levels at once. It looks at the dispute, maybe it's the elephant, but it also looks at the elephant in the room, which is the, the, the hidden things that you can't talk about, that you distrust each other about. And it tries to work structurally, it tries to work on relationships, it tries to work on tangible issues all at once. And this is a very long, difficult process with a lot of setbacks. Um, and so really what we absolutely need to do in conservation right now, urgent, why I'm saying is urgent, we need to get much, much better at resolving conflicts before they get to this stage. Um, it may feel like a lot of conservation conflicts are, and some would argue that a lot of them are already in this sort of realm. I'm a little more optimistic. I think some, some conflict look to us more intractable than they are. I think there are actually quite a number of kind of 18th camel solutions out there. But we as collectively as a field do not yet have the capacity and the numbers of people who know how to resolve these things. That's what I'm suggesting has to change. Where do we go from here? Even if we have a surface level and understanding of how these conflicts evolve and what needs to be done, what the approaches are, what, what needs to happen, there's a huge field out there of conflict and peace studies. Um, there you will find all sorts of models of the cycles of conflict. Here's a very common kind of example. And so this makes me think about the fact that in conservation or in any, in an, or any conflict really, what typically happens, which is always depicted in, in the theories, is that something triggers, a conflict escalates, there's a crisis, and then through some form of um, intervention, it manages to de-escalate. Um, and so this is kind of the simple conceptual curve of how conflicts progress. My concern, my real worry, is that in conservation, we do not at scale 
have the ability to, to, to bring these conflicts back down and that they can carry on and they can go and, and, and they can just stay at crisis level for far too long and stay at intense levels much, much too long. And the worry here is, you know, take for example, um, here uh, recently in the last weeks, there was a, a row over fisheries between England and France. Um, this is a very common situation. Fisheries conflicts pop up all the time. This is so um, high stakes that immediately it's dealt with very with people who know how to deal with these things and these things are dealt with in conservation we don't have those we don't have the knowledge we don't have the resources we don't have access to that kind of structural support and so we're at risk of going ending up with a lot of conflicts that are just going on and on and of course we have to think also about cost human uh, conservation is a very poor field intervening might cost a little bit resolving once it's getting worse and worse is going to cost more when you've got a, a, a crisis and you've got many of them we don't know what these costs are this would be an interesting thing to study but they're going to be high and they're going to just continue and we can't we literally can't afford this in conservation we don't have this funding to deal with this so we have to we have to become very much better at knowing how to, how to stop those escalations as an entire field. Um, I would propose that we, the first thing is to understand the importance of this across conservation, to build capacity, to make conservation, uh, to make conflict resolution part of every project of every intervention and to reach out to, to fields that can help and to incorporate this into policy and strategy as it is now emerging in things like the CPT. So I said at the beginning, conflict resolution is critically important for conservation worldwide. And I would say, well, the solution to that is we have to invest in, in conflict resolution, peace building um, at scale. And by invest, I mean in resources and in capacity building and in knowledge and in everybody who works in conservation becoming aware and knowing how to approach these things. I would like to see conflict resolution taught in every conservation degree, in every conservation course. I would like to see the hundreds of mediators who, can, who are there to help in conservation projects. I would like to see projects actually building this into, into their uh, initiatives as, as a norm, not as an exception. And with that, I think we can finally get there. Thank you very much. Take a few. Well, Alex, thank you. We have now the opportunity for <coughs> questions from the floor. And through the marvelous intervention of Clara, who's going to multitask by running the microphone around and keeping an eye on the extended family out in the, the internet, <coughs> we'll have questions from both. Um, so if you'd like to indicate, please, if you've got a, got a question. Uh, yeah, at the very back there, it's close to you already. Hi there. Very briefly, you've talked quite a lot about conflicts between people arising through in relation to conservation. 
uh, and not that much about the natural world and its voice. So how do you take into account the voice of nature as represented, perhaps through representatives in, in this process? By the way, do say who you are. Oh, I'm David Calver. I'm a, an independent retired researcher. Thank you. Um, here, let's do this. Um, so nature, wildlife itself, its voice is portrayed through people. People speak on behalf of the interests or what we consider to be the interests of wildlife people uh, or biodiversity. And so that then is a group of people and those they represent what they value and that may be different to what others value or need. And so ultimately it is again about people versus people. You've got a question from the outer world. Um, so this is from Rachel online. She said, how can education programs be used to resolve conflicts? And can you share any key examples where an educational program has played a significant part in the resolution? So education in the sense of provision of information or awareness itself tends not to resolve disputes. Simply throwing, and we see this a lot in the more in the deeper conflicts, simply throwing um, information at people does not get them to change their mind. If you're talking about how do we educate better conflict resolution skills, then that that I would say is extremely important. And I'm one I'm asking why are we not at, at scale learning these skills in schools also? Why are we not teaching negotiation and conflict resolutions in schools? It is part of everybody's everyday life and the fabric of society. But in particular in conflict, in conservation, these skills need to be um, built up hugely. Thank you. Um, I'm a student of uh, biodiversity conservation uh, in the School of Geography. And when you mention, or when you say conservationists have little funding or capacity to uh, deal with these conflicts, do you also mean that governments and NGOs and other stakeholders have little interest to contribute in the resolution of these conflicts? Sorry, I didn't catch that. The, the, say the last part again, please. Um, I wanted to know if there's interest from the governments and uh, NGOs and corporations to contribute in the resolutions of these conflicts, because you mentioned that uh, there's little funding and yeah. capacity elsewhere. To contribute, I think there's definitely increasingly an awareness and need for, um, for the need for this. The willingness to actually put resources to it for example, into um, training or capacity building or even hiring um, mediators, for example, that I, I'm not seeing or very, very little. It's the exception. And I think that has a little bit to do with it. It doesn't, it's not very tangible for a funder. Um, it, it's, it's quality, it's soft. How do you, how do you demonstrate what has, has been done? And for if you put yourself into the shoes of a funder, they have to show. Um, impact and they have to show it quickly and a lot of the funding is in short cycles and we need a quick result now that some of these conflicts are not going to be fixed in, 
in, in two or three years? How are you going to show? This is another question that is uh, ties into the bigger policy questions, actually. How do we demonstrate that we are making progress in resolving conflict like that at scale? Claudio. Hi, Claudio Siliero. Um, you made a compelling case about conservation practitioners not getting involved in mediation and the need for professional mediation. Um, quite often, conservation practitioners belong to different cultures, a society different to those people having conflict. And quite often, mediators that are brought in also come from different backgrounds. So what would be the main criteria to find successful mediators in a generic way? Well, I would say that there's no reason that conservation scientists can't learn how to become a mediator. Because when you're dealing, in some situations, you can put yourself outside the problem enough to take on a sufficiently impartial role to help help along, um, even just to maybe firefight the situation in the first instance. And those are skills that we can and should all learn, actually. Um, but when it becomes, when things are much more um, tense or where the conservation is seen as a party by any of the other parties, when there's clash between new conservation people, then obviously you will be seen as that, you cannot act as an impartial mediator. Um, so I think that the fields of sustainable development have, are, are actually ahead of us in this. They, they already use this much more than we do in conservation. There's something to learn and maybe to borrow and bring in. Sarah, voice from the ESA. Uh, so this is uh, Laura Perry from Wild Crew. Um, she, um, following on, I think, from what you've just been saying, she wants to know what the extent your points about conflict resolution are quite evident to in situ um, researchers, but what then do you think the barriers are to courses, institutions, building conflict resolution into programmes? Why aren't they doing this already? And what can we as individuals do to push this conflict re resolution education agenda? Great question. So I think at this point in time, it's a, it's um, it's an issue of awareness, actually, because if you think back to, um, you know, 20 years ago, conservation efforts were so focused on natural science, um, and we started to bring in social science, and now it's very, very normal to do that. And in conservation projects, you will tend to have social scientists on the team. So I think that that will naturally happen. We will start to, through talking about the need for this start to see um, project designs actually incorporate conflict resolution and professionals in that. At least that is my hope, and that's what I'm arguing we need to see. Question there. Thank you. Thanks for the nice talk. Arash, good to see. Um, I have a question uh, whether how much you see conservation is being reflexive on their own actions in terms of creating new conflicts. I mean, we are talking, for example, about 30 by 30 and mm -hmm. all the conflict that probably would escalate with such decisions, potentially, and there are strong calls against it. How much, for example, IUCN as a high level conservation organization really takes into account in their decision making to account Exactly. So creating new protected areas, which is what 30 by 30 is about, is creates high potential for conflict. And that is why that was also quite controversial, or one of the reasons it was controversial. Um, and so 
what has to change structurally and systemically is that conflict prevention and awareness of the possibility of conflicts of merging has to be a given. It has to, we have to be aware of that at every level. So as the conservationists on the ground, but also at IUCN or at, at CBD levels. Conflict prevention, if you, if it would be nice to actually calculate some of those costs and we might try and do that. Um, but certainly not letting it get to the point where you then with conservationists start with the intention of making a win-win solution, but can get sucked into being a party that is then facing a lot of hostility. We don't want to go there. Please. Hello, uh, Matt Hayden from Natural England. Um, your IUCN is currently developing guidelines for human wildlife <coughs> conflict. Can you just give us a little bit of an update uh, of when they're likely to be available for us to use? Because I mean, the, in, the IUCN's reintroduction guidelines have sort of been sort of a benchmark for reintroduction. So I'm <laughs> hoping that the, the human wildlife conflict ones will prove to be the same. Yeah, so that is actually um, the, the reintroduction translocation guidelines of IUCN are kind of our, our, our model in a way, because what we'd like to achieve with these guidelines is that um, these are kind of a standard that you need to be aware of to, and that give you practical guidance. This is very, very much short bits of practical guidance. It has been um, a difficult thing to even figure out how to structure and how to make how to make most useful for all the human wildlife conflicts in the world. So how do you write guidelines that apply to humpback whales and fisheries in Scotland, but also apply to um, you know, shark issues in, in reunion? So where we are at, we're in the very final stages, a couple of chapters in the last stages of drafting. What we are going to do is once there is a reasonably good complete version, which is probably in the next few months, we are going to start piloting it and sort of beta testing it. We're going to field test these guidelines rather than, um, you know, format and say, here you go, everybody follow this. We're going to have projects and ministries and organizations actually try them out as a sort of pilot version, then improve them. So use the collective intelligence of practitioners and of decision makers to make them better and then create a final, that very final version is a little way off, but a pilot version is pretty imminent. Okay, <clears throat> we're on to our last rather brief question. Um, thank you for your talk. Um, you spoke about uh, taking the many suggestions that you provided to scale, and that's a co very common phrase being used in environmental related issues, right from climate <clears throat> to biodiversity. So I was wondering if you had any thoughts on how do you reconcile this, the time involved? Because many of the things that you suggested, like especially for conflict two and three, which are more serious, is think about <laughs> histories and all of that, takes a lot of time, like building trust and everything. So what are your thoughts on how do we keep that in mind? Because it would take a long time to do some of the things that you have suggested in the ways forward. Absolutely, all the more reason to really hurry, I would say, um, and start to, the first thing we can do is have everybody studying conservation science start to understand these things um, on all of us too, actually. I mean, you don't have to, there are zillions of negotiation courses and conflict resolution courses. If you're interested 
in this, there's a lot of material out there, start there. But then what I would like to see is that it becomes part of the, how we do things as a norm. Um, in every project, in every organization, it becomes completely normal to involve um, conflict resolution specialists. In the short term, that might mean bringing in, and for that you need resources. But eventually we need to be able to do this internally. Okay, well, <laughs> some brief but nonetheless sincere thanks. Um, of course, these thanks all focus on Alex and her tremendous presentation, but there's a wider circle here. I'd go back to our very first questioner asking about who represents wildlife or nature or animals. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that's uh, been developed actually from our natural governance program here is a way of thinking about social justice in conservation. Uh, several of us led by John Vucetic, who is a scholar and part of our program with Alex and myself and others as co-authors, was to draw a distinction between different worldviews. Um, you might characterize them glibly as anthropocentrists who think that nature and wild animals are merely chips in the game to be played, or non-anthropocentrists, uh, I'm one of those, uh, who thinks that nature and wildlife have a stake in the, as having interests in the conclusion and have to be taken into account accordingly. Uh, my mention of our natural governance program was because this is actually the last event in that Martin School program. So as well as thanking Alex and thanking all of you and all who've participated over the years now that we've been doing this, uh, <clears throat> I want on behalf of myself and my two colleagues who convened the whole program, professors Harvey Whitehouse and Dominic Johnson, to uh, acknowledge what a delight this program has been for us. I think it's been fruitful and our thanks go to the Martin School and all who sail in her uh, for making that possible. Uh, our experience, and I hope it's been yours, is that the Martin School is the most extraordinary institution for bringing the best out of scholarship. So uh, thanks to everybody involved. Thank you to my colleagues in the Natural Governance uh, Programme. Thank you to the Martin School. Thank you to our previous speakers and colleagues. And today, most particularly, uh, thank you to Alex for her talk. Thank you.